So again, good to uh, see many people whom I recognize, and again to uh, see many people who I'm just getting to know. Hopefully we'll get to know a little bit better in the discussion time. Last week I gave a talk and we had a discussion on a theme very much uh, fresh in relation to much of what's happening in the U.S. and in the entire world. And that, that's the theme that I explored is that of Buddhist practice and the transformation of racism. So again, it's a kind of a ambitious sounding title and one that I want to explore with, with some degree of humility and, and some, uh, in fact, uh, vulnerability. Uh, but I want, I explored that last time and today I want to take that further. Last time I gave five perspectives that we might say can guide us in doing both inner and outer work for the transformation of racism. And I focused especially on the first three and didn't have as much time for the last two. So uh, today I want to give a review of what I covered last time, but go into much more detail on what I didn't have so much time to cover and then bring in some other materials. And I want to present uh, what I'm offering today in a very traditional framework, which I think is can be helpful for us to hold. In Buddhist tradition from the beginning, training was understood to occur in three ways. There was training in wisdom, there was training in meditation, there was training in ethics or how we act with others. And in fact, one can look at the uh, Noble Eightfold Path and see that there actually are two of the factors. The first two have to do with wisdom. The next three, you know, right livelihood, right speech. Uh, what else? Uh, right livelihood, right speech, right action have to do with ethics. And then the last three, right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness have to do with meditation. So this is a very traditional model, but I think it can really be also a kind of guide to our present time. So I want to interpret the first three perspectives that I gave as really guiding us from the standpoint of wisdom. And those three were first, and this I'll, I'll briefly review in a moment. The first perspective, which is a wisdom perspective, I think is that it also has to do with ethics, is that when we look to the historical Buddha, we can get some inspiration from the fact that the Buddha, at least in terms of his own community, had no room for the caste system, did not permit the caste system within his own community. So that's the first perspective. The second perspective, again, a wisdom perspective, is that we can see how greed, hatred, and delusion 
are not just factors of the individual mind, but they also get expressed at the level of society, culture, and institutions. In other words, greed, hatred, and delusion also get institutionalized, and we can understand racism as a form of greed, hatred, and delusion that's been institutionalized. That's the second perspective. The third perspective is that racism is a kind of construction that gets developed at a certain point in history in the US and in other places. And as such, as a construction, has no ultimate reality, we might say, or doesn't refer to any clear reality. It's a construction. As a construction, it had an origin. As a construction, it can be deconstructed. Not easy, but it's helpful to know that. So those are the first three perspectives that fall under wisdom. And then under ethics, I wanted to explore how taking our ethical practice seriously gives us a basis for action, you know, both in terms of looking at our own behavior and even our own minds, but also in terms of our relationships, our participation in a in our communities and institutions, and then in terms of the larger society. So looking at our ethical practice, again, not simply as something that's only what we do in our face-to-face -face interactions, but something that really can be seen to cover our response to social situations and that it points towards different forms of what we might call transformative action based on our ethical foundations, particularly on our guidelines not to harm, not to kill, but also in relation to the other of the, the five main uh, ethical guidelines for laypersons. And then the last area is that of meditation. I want to particularly focus on the role of mindfulness and other forms of meditation, particularly I'll, I'll point to compassion practice as very, very key to the transformation of racism. And that'll echo what a lot of other people are doing. Uh, people like Ruth King, who wrote the book called Mindful of Race, uh, Rhonda McGee, uh, also focused on that area and, uh, and others. So that's my, uh, that's my approach today. Uh, I, I'll, I'm intending not to talk as long as I did last time so we can have more time for discussion. I have to confess, I'm not always very good at that. So, but I'm gonna, so if I sometimes, uh, I'm a little brief, that's because I wanna really keep the time for uh, talking together, which I think is very important. And so, as I did last time, I think it's important to say a little bit about my own standpoint and, and background, you know, recognizing this as a, 
very uh, charged area, often a very difficult one. And it's one where, again, I'm wanting to acknowledge my own blind spots. I may be awkward at times or say things that in later I might think were not so skillful. So I just want to acknowledge that comes with the territory and that we all we all really have unconscious material. We're all, I would say, deeply conditioned. And this is really no matter what our ethnicity is, there's deep conditioning. You know, I, some of you know, you know, comments, for example, I remember uh, Jesse Jackson, it was about 25 years ago, he said, he said this, to acknowledging his own conditioning, there is nothing more painful to me <clears throat> at this stage in my life than to walk down the street <clears throat> and hear footsteps, then turn around, see somebody white and feel relieved. That's Jesse Jackson, African-American leader. There's a very kind of similar story that uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu once told. Uh, Desmond Tutu, the chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in, in uh, South Africa, he described the experience of being on a plane flying from Nigeria noticing that there were two black pilots, feeling good about that. But then later, when there was a lot of turbulence, he noticed his own thinking saying, I wonder if those black pilots are good enough for the turbulence. This is a man who deeply, deeply committed to the anti-apartheid struggle, noticing those thoughts in himself. So it's just to say, that, and this is where mindfulness will be very helpful, we just need to notice what's there in a sense without taking it personally, because the conditioning is very, very thick. Okay, so I find it actually um, kind of, those kind of stories open up some permission, I think, for everyone to um, have all sorts of stuff coming through and not to take it too personally or to have it impact self-image. So I'll come back to that point because that's where mindfulness comes in. So again, just to acknowledge my own standpoint uh, as of uh, Jewish ancestry, which in the history of being white in America was uh, ambiguous. Uh, there's a book called How Jews Became White Folk. And I think I mentioned last time According to the book, it occurred between, you know, roughly between 1945 and 1965. Before that, Jewish people were not firmly white. Anyway, it's it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. You know, you can read the uh, can read the history of whiteness, and it's it's weird because it's a it's a it's an unstable construction basically. Now I'll come back to that point. And so, but also. Some of my history is being influenced a lot by my parents who were active in the civil rights movement. My uh, mom, in fact, uh, starting in the 1970s, did what would now be called diversity training. You know, and they were they were active in a number of ways. She did training in the uh, they had just moved to Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. and. She uh, did diversity, what we would now call diversity training at a time of court ordered desegregation. 
Um, they had they had funds for 10 years until Ronald Reagan became president, at which point the funds dried up or were, were cut. <clears throat> so first, the training and wisdom. You know, again, our, our practice is in significant part a training and wisdom. We train to see more clearly. We're guided by certain teachings, like the most well-known or the teaching of the four noble truths or the teaching of uh, the Noble Eightfold Path, a number of other teachings. <clears throat> and so here, again, I'll review briefly three main areas. The first is that it's really helpful to know that the Buddha contested the caste system within his own community, did not permit it. I think many of us know that the that uh, what we now call India had been, we might say, invaded by people coming from the West in what is now uh, Iran, Turkey, that area. They were called Aryans. They came into Northwest India and they subjugated the native people. The native people were darker skinned and they were uh, lighter skinned. They set up a system whereby the darker skinned people were in the lower parts of the society's hierarchy, you know, which later came to be called the caste system. And the people at the top were better. Is this familiar? <laughs> Pretty interesting, right? That, so this happened in, this was, this was the society the Buddha was born into as a member of one of the upper castes, actually, a member of the uh, Satriya or the warrior caste. And so the Buddha didn't contest the caste system as a social reformer, but he set up for his practitioners a community where anybody from any caste could join including people from the outcast, the people who are in the lower caste, anyone could join the community and become a practitioner. And so in, in his talks, he often said that being born into a caste says nothing about the superiority of a given person or the inferiority. He said only by how one lives can one be evaluated? And so that was very clear and very strong. And he gave instructions for people in this community when they were out in a larger society to treat everyone the same. So this is helpful, I think. This is instructive. This gives some historical basis. Again, uh, that we can we can find that. So I gave more detail on that last time. And by, by the way, the, uh, the talks for Wednesday are generally, and the talk from last week is on the website dharmaseed.org, D-H-A-R-M-A-S-E-E-D.org. So if you want to hear in more detail that point, that's, that's from, from last time. The second point, uh, which again is, is really a wisdom perspective on how we see is that uh, 
greed, hatred, and delusion, I believe, need to be understood as manifest at the social level, at the cultural level, at the institutional level, not simply aspects of the individual mind. And that would make sense because people who have greed, hatred, and delusion act and they create social structures. They create cultures, right? I should say we create cultures, we create societies. And so we don't have that analysis very fully in the tradition. But people in the last maybe 20 years, particularly my colleague uh, David Loy, who lives in Colorado, have developed this analysis that we can start to see, use the framework of greed, hatred, and delusion, but see greed, hatred, and delusion as something that gets institutionalized. You know, in all sorts of ways, you know, we can see, you know, aspects of greed institutionalized probably more clearly in certain dimensions of the economic system. You know, where some people amass huge sums of money, never seems like enough, and where you have a system based on endless consumption. And there can be, you know, uh, ways that we see that greed institutionalized. We can see hatred institutionalized, obviously, in racism, but also in other ways. And we can see uh, delusion gets institutionalized in various, in various ways through ideologies, through narratives, through aspects of the educational system, very clear with racism. Most of us were not educated well about the realities of racism. So there's a certain amount of delusion in the educational system and the media and so forth. And so we can look at uh, race and racism in particular and see how this could be seen to be, I think the main form of what we might call social dukkha you know, or social suffering. Many people have talked about the fact of slavery and the legacy of slavery, along with the near genocide of Native people, as the founding crimes of the United States. You know, other cultures have, have something similar, I think, but the founding crimes, and as of now, uh, there are still wounds not yet healed, and there's this uh, kind of outpouring now of people who there's a kind of a, there's potential now, it seems, to address these core wounds, particularly the wound of, of racism. It's quite remarkable, you know, and one thing that uh, I think is helpful to remember, uh, I think it, it brings a certain hopefulness to this, to the present situation, is that um, I think about I think almost 15 years ago, there was a study done of nonviolent movements. What they found is that every historical nonviolent movement that had a participation level in the society of at least 2.5%. In other words, 2.5% of the population were involved in a movement. 
every time there's that level of involvement, every time historically there's been that level, the movements always are successful, 100%. Even, you know, in, in the study, even in the case of dictatorships. And so one question is, how do we develop that 2.5% here in this country, in the US? And then the other question is, will each of us be part of that 2.5%? It's a way to look at it. I find that very hopeful, right? And you can feel elements of that happening the way that many institutions, organizations are, you know, are speaking up, you know, it has to be sustained, but there's something, there's something happening, right? So, right, so again, that, uh, way that greed, hatred, and delusion gets institutionalized. Last time I looked in detail, in some detail, about how that manifests for people of African background. And of course it manifests for, you know, the system is there for everyone with, with different levels of uh, pain and oppression. But last time I looked at how it was particularly for people of African descent in terms of parameters like you know, healthcare, uh, imprisonment, the judicial system. We can look at all sorts of uh, parameters, wealth, educational levels. So I gave some detail last time. Um, but I thought just to bring this out again, maybe at the level a little bit more of the heart, I wanted to read something from the author uh, Ibram Kendi. Some of you know, a uh, very influential author in the last five years. Uh, wrote a, what he called a definitive history of racist ideas. I think it's called Stamp from the Beginning, and also did a book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Uh, and he wrote this article just a little while ago for The Atlantic. And he wrote this uh, reflecting on the killing of uh, George Floyd. Black Americans are constantly stepping into the souls of the dead because they know they could have been them, they are them, because they know it is dangerous to be black in America, because racist Americans see black as dangerous. To be black and conscious of anti-black racism is to stare into the mirror of your own extinction. And the souls of the 10,000 black victims of COVID-19 who might still be living if they had been white and the souls of those who were told the pandemic was the great equalizer. Ask the souls of those forced to choose between their low-wage jobs and their treasured life. Ask the souls of those blamed for their own death. Ask the souls of those who disproportionately lost their jobs and then their life as others disproportionately raged about losing their freedom to infect us all. And the souls of those ignored by the governors reopening their states. So that's the second perspective that greed, hatred, and delusion get institutionalized. And that the, the corollary is that if we were to address greed, hatred, delusion, we need to do so inside as it were, as well as outside. That's the second perspective. 
The third perspective is that race is a construction. You know that in that sense, being black is a construction, being white is a construction. And uh, for me, this is, is actually hopeful because it lets us see that race was developed at a particular point in history and can be deconstructed as well. And, you know, for those of you who are into uh, sort of Buddhist studies, I could say that one of the Buddhist main concepts that we can use if we wish to see the constructed aspect is the notion of emptiness, which I think an ordinary English explanation of emptiness is merely constructed, not having, not having any ultimate reference point in reality, a conceptually mediated uh, way of understanding. I'm not going to go so much into emptiness, but it's helpful to really see the constructed nature. Uh, Robert Jensen, who has written books on whiteness, he, he writes, I think he's at University of Texas, Austin. He writes, race is a fiction we must never accept. Race is a fact we must never forget. So the fact that it's a construction goes hand in hand with the construction having terrible consequences. So that should be clear, right? It's a construction, it's a kind of fiction there was a very good series put out by PBS quite a while ago, I think 2003, uh, on race called The Future of an Illusion, which uh, much of it's on YouTube, so it's worth really seeing. It's a very good uh, resource. And so it's helpful just to see these constructions happen. You know, uh, for example, uh, I gave last time a little bit of depth about how in the Virginia colonies in the latter part of the uh, 17th century, race was invented in a sense that in the mid 16th, 17th century in Virginia, uh, there wasn't a concept of race. There weren't whites and blacks uh, living with uh, knowing those labels. People were called according to their nation of origin and their religion. So they were sometimes called Christians or English or someone from, you know, this country, from this country in Africa or whatever, and or this place in Africa. And the, their, uh, the system was way looser than it became. People could, as slaves, could move out of slavery uh, they could get land. In Virginia, there were former slaves who had land and homes. Uh, people uh, also uh, really could be, uh, yeah, there could be ways, there could be, uh, in, there was intermarriage, I should say. Uh, there was, uh, because the people who from African, of African descent, were typically working side by side in the fields with indentured servants. They're actually, for much of the 17th century, there were way more indentured servants than there were slaves. At a later point, those who were the rulers decided for various reasons not to use indentured servants so much, but to have more slaves. 
the people of African descent who were uh, who were called slaves also largely spoke English because most of them had come from the uh, Caribbean. So there was a lot of mingling. At a key time in 1676, there was a rebellion in which the uh, people, the people of European background, mostly English, and the, those who were slaves joined together in a rebellion against the rulers. And there were several such rebellions. The most well-known is called Bacon's Rebellion. This totally freaked out the rulers. After the rebellion, they changed the laws. They declared that the rebellion had been uh, carried out by dangerous uh, slaves, which wasn't true. It was a rebellion in which there was solidarity between those uh, who were indentured servants, low income uh, people, <clears throat> and uh, people who were called slaves. And the rulers developed this whole series of laws and they more or less developed the concept of white and black. The, the word white does not appear in any legal document until 1691, which is 15 years after the rebellion. After that, the slave laws became hardened, slavery became hereditary. There were, uh, the slaves were portrayed as dangerous. There were slave patrols set up and they enlisted the lower income people who now were called whites to be in the slave patrols, which became the basis for uh, later for the police. In other words, there was what we would call a divide and conquer strategy. Whiteness and blackness and these terms and the creation of race, according to this discussion, which is, you know, a number of historians and other analysts uh, really put forth this uh, analysis. It's not, you know, it's not mine, that there was a very forthright divide and conquer strategy by the rulers, which has more or less lasted for 300 plus years. And you can see elements of that same uh, divide and conquer strategy in the politics of the last 50 years. Uh, you can see Nixon appearing to appealing to law and order. You can see later presidents, uh, Reagan talking about the end of welfare and having the, uh, no, yeah, no, it was more Clinton, uh, but Reagan talking about the war on drugs, which was heavily racialized. Clinton with the end of welfare as we know it. And of course, need I say more about the current president? Total divide and conquer strategy on behalf of the wealthy, right? That's, that's the strategy. You know, I found a quote from uh, John Ehrlichman, who I think was the, was the attorney general during Nixon's administration. This is what he said about uh, Nixon's strategy. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies the anti-war left and black people. This is John Ehrlichman, by the way. This is the attorney general speaking later in an interview he did. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, 
but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt these communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know that we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So divide and conquer, still very much happening. And for me, again, I, I mentioned last time, someone who's inspired me is a, a writer and teacher at, at University of California, Berkeley, named Ian Haney Lopez, who uh, wrote a book, has written several books, one of them called Dog Whistle Politics, which is about the, what I've just mentioned. But he also says that what's really needed right now is to merge the efforts at economic justice with the efforts at racial justice. And he's done a great deal of uh, research and with focus groups and so forth. He believes that this actually would resonate with a majority of the population if it's framed in the right way, right? That connecting economic justice and racial justice and Bernie Sanders went partly there didn't emphasize the racial justice so much, but late, more lately he did. So then we come to ethical practice. And remember the training is in wisdom, the training is in ethics, and the training is in meditation. And our guidelines typically for ethical practice are you may remember the five lay ethical precepts. We often take them at the beginning of retreats not to kill, not to harm, first precept, not to take that which is not given, not to steal, the second precept, and then to be careful and respectful in the areas that often cause difficulties, third, sexuality, fourth, speech, communication, and fifth, the use of substances which shift consciousness. And I think we often understand these precepts more in terms of our individual face-to-face -face behavior. But again, I think a perspective that's very important is to see our ethical practice, not just as about what I do, you know, with a few people in my face-to-face -face interactions, but they're also, it's also related to how we are in the larger society. And we can find among many, many Buddhist teachers and even from the Buddha, this larger perspective about what ethics is about, that it's actually about our being in communities and being in a society, not just about what we do in individual face-to-face -face behavior. And when we take that perspective, then when we find harm being done in the society, it's part of our ethical practice to respond. That's what I want to suggest here. Uh, that if we, that taking our ethical practice very seriously. And, and our ethical practice often has second or third place behind meditation and wisdom, I should say, in the way Buddhism has come to the West. That's another, another point. But I think that taking our ethical practice much more seriously is a really key aspect of our practice. That's somewhat underdeveloped. So, I think I might have mentioned this last time uh, from Thich Nhat Hanh saying that uh, not to kill is not enough, he says. 
we must also learn ways to prevent others from killing. We cannot say I am not responsible. They did it. My hands are clean. If you were in Germany during the time of the Nazis, you could not say they did it and I did not. So he's basically saying if there's harm being done, especially in my name, in my society, with my tax dollars, then I have responsibility. And we find passages that are supportive of that approach from the Buddha himself. You know, he says, let one not kill, but also not cause others to kill, not approve of others killing. So it's not just about one's face-to-face -face behavior or actions, but he's saying, don't cause others to kill and don't approve, don't sanction the killing or the harm of others. You know, and this was sometimes brought into places where there was Buddhist influence. The great King Ashoka of India interpreted non-harming and believe it or not, in the uh, third century of the common era, he outlawed capital punishment in the kingdom of Ashoka. So he was interpreting the ethical guidelines as guiding, we might say, uh, a social approach, social policy. And we can also see how, of course, racism engenders tremendous level of harm. I think it engenders tremendous harm in everyone, not just the, the, those at the lower end of the hierarchy. You know, I think I, I forget who it was, but uh, I, I think I've heard from many African-American writers that there's um, there's a kind of soul death with being a white person who doesn't look into whiteness. That there's something that is dead inside to accept uh, harm being done. Something we can we can look at if we're if we're white. So you know, racism involves collective harm. We could say collective stealing, stealing the labor, and then all the vet, you know vast number of uh, policies which uh, have favored people we call white. And I just thought I'd mention, this is something that interests me, just how I mentioned how whiteness is something very unstable, primarily because from the beginning it was defined negatively. To be a white person was not to be uh, a black person, but there wasn't any positive core for being a white person. So historically, the term has varied tremendously. You know, then there's other so books out there like how Jews became white folk, how the Irish became white, because in many circles they were not considered white, you know, until fairly recently. And you can also, you know, there was a, the immigration law 
was uh, of 1790 said any freely born white person can enter the country, but they didn't really clarify what a white person was. And so historically, it's crazy. For one historical period, people of Japanese background were considered white, but then they had legal cases and people reconsidered. I think 1924, when there was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of movement regressively. Uh, in, in, the, in, in the immigration courts, for a lot of years, they couldn't decide whether people from the Middle East were white or not. Again, looks like this is looking at the whole constructed nature. And I, I think of these people in law courts, you know, sitting there for days on end debating, is this person from Syria white or not? And they actually went back and forth historically. I mean, I think it shows the absurdity. I think there would be a wonderful drama showing these judges debating for, you know, weeks talking with each other about whether someone from Syria is white or not, like talking for weeks about delusions, basically. Anyway, I, I wanted to say that because, I mean, and then, you know, you can look at the whole history of artwork around Jesus, who was probably a darker skinned person. But by the 1930s, he was from Scandinavia. Right, so it's, anyway, I, I think some humor is helpful here. So um, anyway, so another aspect of ethical practice then is to uh, find ways to act. And so we, we can act in terms of this is following a model of Joanna Macy's. We can act by preventing further damage. We can sh help shift the institutions and we can also change consciousness. And so our ethical action can have many, many different expressions, you know, to, to change, you know, to change uh, to at times and see where one's drawn at times to be in a protest modality at times to be trying to change institutions. And then the last area I want to talk about more briefly is that of meditation. There's a very significant role uh, for meditation in the transformation of racism. You know, and here I'm really uh, relying some on my own experience being in uh, training groups, but also the very important work of people like Ruth King, who wrote uh, Mindful of Race, I have that book here, Mindful of Race, very helpful book. Another book is by Rhonda McGee, uh, who called the inner, uh, the inner Work of Racial Justice. She teaches at the University of San Francisco Law School. And so we can train in a few areas in terms of meditation. Mindfulness for both uh, Ruth and Rhonda plays a very key role. And we want to have a tool by which we can look at our own conditioning as much as possible with openness and without reactivity. How can I look at my own consciousness? And this kind of investigation is really supported, I think, best initially in small groups of people with similar conditioning, where we can one can look into you know, for some, 
a kind of internalized oppression, for others a kind of internalized privilege. But the group setting often really supports the mindfulness. But with the mindfulness, we can look into our conditioning. We can, you know, again, we're best served by doing reading, getting a sense of others' experience, and looking for what appears in the mind in certain situations. Doing so as much as possible with a no shame, no blame attitude, and really noticing it because just as with our mindfulness practice more generally, when we notice our conditioning and our habits with mindfulness, we can interrupt that conditioning and interrupt those habits. That's the essence of why mindfulness is so strong. And we can also bring material that's relatively unconscious to the surface. That's what happens with our mindfulness practice generally. We can also be skillful at working with the difficult emotions and thoughts which might come up. You know, there might come up shame or uh, guilt or grief or sadness or despair or fear. And of course, our mindfulness practice is tremendously valuable whether we're doing silent meditation or whether we're engaged in action, tremendously valuable for helping us to navigate these waters, so to speak. And so mindfulness plays a very key role. Ruth King says, the best tool I know of to transform our relationship to racial suffering is mindfulness meditation. Again, not instead of action, but hand in hand with the other dimensions I've spoken about. <clears throat> you know that there are these there are these two aspects. Again, I quoted, I think last time, Angel Kyoto Williams. Love and justice are not two. Without inner change, there can be no outer change. Without collective change, no change matters. And so the mindfulness can give us resilience, can really be tremendously helpful. And then I wanted to mention, I could mention other things, but I also want to mention compassion, you know, and say that it's really important in all of this to bring in the heart practices, loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity. I think forgiveness can come in. I want to emphasize compassion is a way that we can hold uh, the sadness and the pain, uh, our own sadness and pain and that of others. Really, really crucial. All of this to hold in the heart. You know that I think anyone who's looking into this territory, a regular heart practice is crucial every day. I would say at least 15 minutes, really, really crucial. And so the compassion helps us to both be with the pain, the more receptive quality of compassion, but also uh, guide us to act. Compassion has both receptive and active dimensions. And so regularly developing compassion in different ways can be really crucial. It helps us then to go into the territory where we might go into deliberately the territory of what's difficult. Maybe, you know, through talking with people, looking into one's own experience, seeing films, seeing um, reading books. Being, into go, uh, being able to go into what's difficult. Helping us to be balanced as we work with what's difficult. 
Again, so the mindfulness and compassion so crucial and work so well together for keeping us balanced, letting us notice whether there are any negative repetitive patterns of mind, maybe even negative, uh, negative narratives about ourselves, about others, and so forth. Really, really crucial. I won't talk about it so much now, but empathy, another uh, inner practice that's so crucial. So I'll finish and open things up by uh, remembering what I learned from uh, a friend who uh, originally from Vietnam, um, uh, a monk, uh, a student of Thich Nhat Hanh and named uh, Thich Minh Duc. And he uh, told me about the movements in Vietnam starting in the 1930s, which were anti-colonial at first, at first against the French, later against the United States. He said that they modified the traditional model of the Dharma being like a bird that flies that has two wings. You may have heard this, the wings are wisdom and compassion. And in Vietnam, they said, no, we need a third aspect which I think relates more to action. He said, we need courage. That bird, and you can think of courage as the body of the bird. The bird only flies with wisdom and compassion as its wings and courage as its body. So I'll, I'll end with that. So thank you for your kind listening. It was a little longer than I wanted, but there's still time to talk together. So. Maybe, again, like I like to do, maybe just pause for a moment, well, for maybe 30 seconds and see, was there something that was helpful, that's, that resonated with you? Are there any questions, anything to share from your own experience? Take about 30 seconds. So thank you. Any um, anyone want to share? Uh, could be a question. Could be a sharing. Anything that I said? Maybe something from your reflections if you were there last week. And Levi, do we have anything? Donald, while we're waiting for uh, anyone to raise hands, a question came into the a couple questions came into the chat earlier. Okay. One is the question of. Um, reparations and how that connects to the to the value of Donna. Yeah, yeah. So probably uh, probably many, many of you, if not all of us have heard of the question of reparations, which is still, you know, um, still not really happening. Right. And there was a, a well-known article by Ta-Nehisi Coates, I think, in The Atlantic in 2014 called The Case for Reparations. And I think we can we can see that uh, historically, obviously, the labor of people of African descent was stolen in, um, in slavery, but then all sorts of things were done 
uh, whereby others benefited uh, and people of African descent were penalized, you know. And the, these things also happen to other people. I mean, I think of the internment of Japanese Americans and so forth. So it's, it's a big issue, but essentially, uh, I think, uh, so I tend to think about reparations more in terms of justice and fairness than in terms of a generous offering. I, I, I'd have to reflect more on that. I tend to think it's more a question of making amends for the past, you know. And uh, again, uh, one thing we can see is uh, there are examples of this in Germany after World War II in the last, uh, what, uh, 70 plus years, Germany did have very, actually fairly large reparations to people of Jewish descent and others. So I think of it more as, more in terms of fairness and justice, but it, it really, uh, and more coming out of compassion and acknowledging pain. Yeah, it's an interesting question, but it also could be a form of uh, action. People could support that. I think, I think my, uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee put forth a motion to have something like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and it could have reparations as one further recommendation. Was there another, Levi? Sure. Another question, um, since you brought up Tanisa Coates, is uh, someone mentioning that reading autobiographical work is really helpful in that learning, and wondering if, uh, in addition to um, uh, in addition to his autobiography, whether there are others that you might recommend? Yeah, yeah, it's a long, it's a long list. Um, I, I should say I didn't mention this, but I, I'm working on a resource list that I'm going to post on my website related to um, race, Dharma practice, uh, whiteness. I actually have one up there now from 2015. Still a lot of good references there, but I'll, I'll, I, I'm planning to work on that to, today and tomorrow. So it might be up by later today because I've been working on that. So, yeah, I mean, there are many uh, autobiographies uh, to read the writings. The You know, obviously, autobiography of Malcolm X is a very important piece of work. Uh, I think Frederick Douglass wrote an autobiography, you know, from the 19th century to read uh, Martin Luther King's writings uh, can be very, very helpful to read his own accounts of his own upbringing and so forth. Uh, and um, yeah, just to read people's own accounts, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, probably we could collectively come up with 10 other titles here. You know, and please, please send those to the chat and maybe I can put them on the list. So other, other questions or sharings from others, you can use the raise hands function on the, the bottom of the screen. You're, you're muted, Levi. Okay. Sure am. Another question that came in through the chat is uh, working on changing angry feelings about politics to a more compassionate response to social hatred 
how to respond to Nazis with compassion was the example that they gave. Okay, how to respond to people maybe who are extremist in terms of uh, race and racism or politicians and so forth to uh, how to work with one's anger. It's hard, you know, I think, you know, I think that the core of our practice is uh, to develop a non-reactivity. This is not easy, you know, I think that you know, I've done some teaching, uh, particularly with my colleague Kazu Haga at Spirit Rock on looking at the connection of Buddhist practice and uh, the nonviolence of King and Gandhi. And so it's an interest of mine. And I think there are recordings up on Dharma Seed on this. But you have basically, I think I have a quotation. This is from, this is from Dr. King. The end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of human beings. That was actually from 1957, Dr. King. And so that's our kind of our North Star. Easier said than done. So we you know, I think there are steps towards that. We have, we work with uh, developing non-reactivity and empathy and compassion with people we're close to with whom we have disagreements. So it's a it's an ongoing training, and to um, you know, but the horizon is to do that even with people we find very very difficult. I don't know if that should be the place where we put a lot of effort, but it is something we can can work with. You know, to uh, I mean, partly to look into the conditioning. There are very interesting stories by people who were, uh, and some of you maybe know this, people who were former skinheads or neo-Nazis who talk about their own background. And some of the ones I've read, they join those groups, much as people might join gangs, because they don't feel like they belong. And here are people who tell them you belong. And the uh, the ideology is somehow, uh, for some of those people, is almost secondhand. It doesn't matter. They just take it on. But they're coming out of uh, enormous pain when they join those groups. It's very widespread. You know, or the, you know, uh, you know, the pain of people who take uh, positions we would call racist. So again, uh, Empathy is a very important quality. And, you know, again, I reading Dr. King, I'm amazed at how empathic he could be towards people who seem to be on the other side. So if you want to get some inspiration, read his read his writings on that. Okay, anyone, maybe time for one or two more. Anyone with uh, the raised hands, Levi? Not at the moment. Okay. Yeah, it could also be a sharing, doesn't have to be a question. Okay. 
Uh, oh, we've got one raised hand. Uh, Ellen, if you'd like to speak, I'm going to unmute you or invite you to unmute. Ellen, go ahead. Yeah. Ellen, you are currently unmuted, but the audio isn't coming through. Um, if you'd like to type in your thought, you're welcome to, um, or if your microphone is not on. Something which works also is be if uh, the internet connect net connection isn't strong, you can drop your video and the audio will stay. Okay, now is the time for psychic powers. Okay. Uh, it looks like uh, the raised hand was hit by accident. So okay. No worries. Okay. Okay, was any, did you have any other written questions or comments, Levi? No, that's all. I think you've given us so much to chew on. There'll be okay. a lot of reflection. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Levi. Okay, so let's, let's finish maybe by going inside. And reflecting on what may have been helpful from the morning. related to the themes of the morning, but perhaps what was helpful actually was something that was catalyzed and doesn't have anything to do with the topic. That that's happens sometimes. So just be with whatever was helpful from the morning for a few moments. And then you can ask the question of yourself, what are my next steps or what's my next step in this area? And maybe to seek out a group where you might explore this with a small group of people or reading or developing your practice in some other way. What's your next step? So I'll close now. Remembering those three aspects of the, the Dharma that flies as this bird with two wings, wisdom and compassion, but also we might say the heart of courage. that really leads into action. So it's kind of a counterpart of these three areas we explored. Training in wisdom, training in meditation, including mindfulness and compassion, training in ethics, 
which leads us into action and requires courage. May our development of these deep and wonderful human capacities be a benefit for us, be a benefit for those around us, be a benefit for those beyond our own circles in ways known and unknown. May our practice, our time together this morning, ultimately be a benefit for all, remembering that that includes us. So thank you everyone and to be continued and Levi, you know, I like to at the end, if you can unmute everyone and we just can say goodbye to each other or hi, just for a few moments. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, Bye. Thanks, everyone. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, to be continued. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yes.